This is Science Friday. I'm Ariel Dimros. Take a quick moment to think about your surroundings. Tune into your senses and contemplate what's happening around you. What do you see? Hear? Smell? Now, I want you to imagine. What if you were a bat? How would you experience the space around you differently? Maybe you could sense a spider through echolocation, or feel minute changes in air pressure and temperature to know where to fly to next. Back with us again to talk about how senses, both familiar and foreign to us, help animals experience their environment, and to tell us what he's learned in the past year since his book was published, is my guest. Ed Young is a science writer and the author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us, out now in paperback. And January's read for the Sci-Fi Book Club. Ed, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So in each chapter of An Immense World, you focus on a certain sensory system, like sight, smell, pain. You've gotten a lot of feedback, I would imagine, on your book since it was published. Is there a particular chapter that has resonated with readers and maybe changed how they understand non-human animals? Ooh. So I think that the very first chapter on smell always particularly struck support of people. And, you know, it was it was intended that way, right? We wanted to come out of the gate strong. And I think smell is very poignant for a few reasons. Firstly, you know, it starts with dogs. And for people who have dogs, like the two of us, um, <laughs> it, it really uh, changes the way you think about this creature that you spend most of your time with. And we really wanted that. By we, I mean myself, my, my editor, Hillary. We, we really wanted to take something that was very familiar in every day and imbue it with this new sense of um, or almost magical reality. I think smell is also a sense that uh, is familiar to, to many of us, you know, but we don't use it in the same way that other animals do. We use it in a more limited way. Um, for us, smell is really about identification. Whereas for other creatures, smell is, is so much more. You know, for ants and elephants, smell is the centerpiece of their social lives. For you know, birds like albatrosses, smell is a way of finding food in a landscape, the open ocean that seems otherwise featureless. So smell is about navigation, it's about communication. And I think the the chapter gets all of that across. It, it does sort of all the things I really want from the book. It, it, it shows some really fascinating animals, uh, some everyday animals in a new light. And it shows you this sense that we kind of think we understand, but facets and sides to it that are extraordinary and that we don't really think about. Nancy has a question about the many, many people you interviewed to make this book possible. Go ahead, Nancy. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Uh, I, I was very interested in the scientists that you worked with, and I was wondering if there were any similar categories or characteristics of them that you could uh, identify. They seemed pretty isolated to me and, and driven by things that I never would have thought necessary or important, and I was very happy to read about them. Um, certainly not isolated. You know, it, it is in the nature of a book like this where we introduce people, you know, one at a time, and, and I can see why you might think that. The, the other piece of it, but driven, yes, very much so, and I think also very thoughtful and just generally like delightful to talk to. You know, I, I have reported on a wide variety of scientific disciplines over my career. 
and I can tell you that some of them have people who are more pleasant to be around than others. Um, <laughs> and this was certainly one of them. And I wondered about why that is. And I think there's a, a few reasons. You've said, Nancy, quite rightly, that a lot of these people care about things that I wouldn't say that most people don't care about, but certainly like they care about animals for their own sake. You know, maybe they in their grants, they put something about the applications for humanity and so on, but they're in it for the curiosity and they're in it because they care about the creatures. And, and I think that line of curiosity driven research, especially driven by curiosity about the natural world, attracts a certain kind of person. It, it attracts people who have that kind of joyous, almost childlike quality to the way they look at the world. And I think that, you know, An Immense World is a book that at its core is about empathy. And I think that this entire field is, is at its mm. core about empathy. It's about trying to put yourself inside the perspectives of creatures that are very different to you and think about what their lives are like. Mm -hmm. I think if you, you it's, it's hard to succeed without doing that. And, you know, maybe that side of it is not in the scientific literature that, that's part of the field. But I guarantee you that every person I interview, almost everyone, has thought about these questions. You know, what is it like to be an electric fish? What is it like to be a bat? What is it like to be an elephant? They, they have spent serious time thinking about it. And, uh, and I think that attracts a certain type of person, like someone who's quite empathetic, someone who's interested in other perspectives. And, you know, those, those qualities together, the, the sort of joyful curiosity and the empathy, I think explain why I certainly had so much fun talking to the scientists that I did for this book. Staying on the topic of, of the scientists and the research for a minute, I've been itching to ask you about the chapter on magnetic fields. I was really struck by the fact that this is the sense that scientists know the least about. Can you yep. talk me through some of the difficulties tied to researching how animals sense our planet's magnetic field? Yeah, absolutely. This was the probably the most recent sense to be discovered. It was uh, in the sort of 50s or 60s when people realized that songbirds, even without any other kinds of landmarks, could head in the right direction when it came time to migrate. And we now know that many animals can do this. Uh, sea turtles can do it. A lot of creatures seem to have this magnetic sense. But Magnetoreception, the ability to sense the Earth's magnetic field, is the only sense for which we don't know the sense organ, the receptor, that's the cell that picks up the magnetic field, or really how any of that works. <laughs> just anything. <laughs> right. We just, we just know it happens. We know animals can do it. But the hows and whats and wherefores, most of that is still mysterious. There are some really strong hypotheses, and I'm pretty sure, like, one or more of these is going to be right. So it's not like we know nothing, but there are still big question marks. So right? anyone who tells you that we've solved the, the puzzle uh, is lying. Now, the, the reason why it's really hard, there's a bunch of different reasons. Some of them have to do with magnetic fields themselves, which are just a very different kind of stimulus than like light or sound or smells. Magnetic fields notably are not impeded or reduced by living matter. So they pass through flesh. They're not blocked by bone or by skin. So while for a lot of other senses, you need the sense organs to be on the surface of the body and you need some kind of hole in a skeleton or, a, or an exoskeleton to house those organs, with 
magnetic fields, you don't. Like the center could be anywhere. So there's no obvious anatomical clue. There's no like pore or hole or opening that might let you think, hey, that's where a sense organ might be. Then there's the fact that because we do not sense magnetic fields, it is a really difficult stimulus to study in experiments, right? Like if I wanted to test the vision of an animal, um, I could show them different sights, different colors, different wavelengths of light, and see how they responded. It's a little harder to do that with magnetic fields, like to produce artificial magnetic fields. And crucially, it's really hard to then know if you've done it right. You know, if I do a, a vision experiment and suddenly, and like, I messed up the equipment and like flashing lights are blaring all the time or it's showing red instead of blue. I can see that, right? Like I, I right. know when I've screwed up. You don't know that with magnetic fields. So just doing the work is extremely hard. And then the stimulus is noisy, right? So, so magnetic fields are very, very weak, which means you know, you're not going to be able to sense them with any kind of precision, even if you do. It's likely that whatever magnetic sensor exists is like taking readings over time and getting a kind of average, right? But that means that how do you do an experiment on that, right? Like <laughs> over what time frame is the averaging happening? Right. So for stimuli that are very weak, very noisy, it's very hard. And then, you know, the final reason is just that is, is actually about, I think, the nature of science, like how knowledge is constructed. Because this is so mysterious and because there's so much at stake here, you know, it's the final frontier of sensory biology. It's the last great unknown sense. There's a huge amount of competition to try and find the magnetic sensing organ, the receptor, the mechanism, all, all of that. I mean, there's, a, there's people talk about how you might there's a Nobel Prize at stake. I, I don't think that's true, but like there's certainly a lot of like glory and renown for whoever nails down the answers to all of these questions. We have time for one last question from our audience. And uh, Thomas has a question about how animals, how we as humans might be able to be more sensitive to other animals. Um, Welton. Go ahead, Thomas. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks so much. So first of all, I just wanted to say like, as a teacher, I think Historically, there's been this problem with talking about the environment where we just dump all of the Earth's woes on the students and then we act surprised that, you know, they kind of get cynical or disinterested about helping the Earth. So I think your presentation of Umwelten is just so perfect for teaching students how to love nature first and then that kind of want to be better just comes from within them, which is awesome. So in that spirit, what, and I know you mentioned some towards the end of the book, but they're more like policy oriented. But what are some practical steps that we as individuals can take to shape our spaces to be more sensitive to other animals, Umwelten? That's a great question, Thomas. And you know, thank you as a teacher for all the work that you do. None of us could do it without you. Um, I, I struggle with this a bit because I actually do really want to focus on the policy part of it, right? Like we we don't actually get out of any of these big challenges by just you know relying on individual people to like turn up their equipment at night or like just do like any of the things that we, we've often been sold as like the solutions to climate change or sensory pollution or whatever. No, like this is stuff that requires big policy changes, regulation and so on. Right. I, and I, I sort of don't want to move away from that because that actually is what we need to do. Like the individual piece of it can be important, but it does end up being a bit of a red herring in a way that 
actors who really should be taking responsibility um, end up shifting responsibility onto people. Like for, for each of us, the kinds of things that are generally good for nature, like plant native gardens for pollinators, um, turn your lights mm -hmm. up at night, like that kind of thing. You know, be, be quiet when you go on a hike. But, you know, I, I think that telling people, getting people to love the natural world, it feels kind of hokey, but I think is actually the crucial first step for exactly the reasons you describe. You know, you you telling people what is at stake and what the problems are has no impact if they don't already care. And so an immense world is about getting people to care. Um, it's about giving them a reason to care. And without, you know, beating them that, over the head with it and saying, you should care. It's, you know, just saying, here is the world. And I think that if you do that enough, the world is so beautiful and so immense and so wondrous that a lot of people can't help but to care than they already do. So your book was published more than a year ago. Oh. Looking back now at the person that you were when you published it, how have you changed since then? You know, how has your perspective of the world and, and the animals we share it with changed? Wow, that is a great question. Um, so when I started writing An Immense World, uh, I did not have a dog and uh, in fact had never had a dog before. So now I do. And I think really having an animal in your life, sharing your home all the time, does change your relationship to the natural world. It, it helped that I think I thought about all the stuff about smell that we've talked about before I had my dog, uh, Typo. And it helped me raise him in a very specific smell-oriented way. It helps me think about his world more. And I am birding now. And I truly cannot overemphasize how much joy I have found through birding. You know, I've, I've written about the natural world for um, my entire career. I've been fascinated by animals for as long as I can remember. And it's kind of weird to me and to everyone else who knows me in retrospect that I wasn't a birder before. You know, it's made me think about... Um, <laughs> The, the way we engage with nature, you know, I've, I've a voluminous academic understanding of the animal kingdom. I could, you know, recite you fun animal facts and tell you interesting things about the animal world for uh, an infinite amount of time. But actually going out and birding gets me something very different. You know, I, I understand the birds in my neighborhood. I understand their relationship to the seasons, to the times of day. You know, I know when birds are more likely to be active. I know which species disappear in which seasons, which ones are most common in which parts of my county. I know how to find rare species. I know which the rarities are. Right? And I find myself paying attention to the weather a lot more, to the tides, to, to the passage mm. of time over the day and over the year. And there's something very grounding about all of that. You know, I think as science writers and science journalists, sometimes the, the knowledge we accumulate is like bereft of that context. You know, it just sort of floats out in the ether. It's, it's little, little stacks of trivia that, that sit in our head. And what I gain from birding is a way of rooting all of that in the land around me. I really love the idea that writing this book and then you know getting a dog like Typo and getting into birding has 
sort of opens you up to being more present, you know, more. It, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful practice that you're talking about. It's really lovely to hear about. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the right way of thinking about it. Just, you know, briefly, like it's, it, I've just often described birding as being more meditative than actual meditation. And it does feel like that. You know, there's something about being very present, using multiple senses, certainly sight and hearing, and just focusing in on small parts of nature, you know, looking down into that bush, gazing into that, like into those branches um, in a way that you, you normally don't. And yeah, it's um, the kind and the degree of presentism that it encourages is really wonderful. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you again for taking the time to come back to speak with us, Ed. Thanks, Ariel. Good to see you. Take care. Ed Yong is a science writer and the author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Revealed the Hidden Realms Around Us, which is our January book choice for the Sci-Fi Book Club. And if you want to learn more about the Sci-Fi Book Club and read along with us, you can find out more at sciencefriday.com slash book club. Happy reading.